Maybe you should get a helmet. My head's so big, my brother says that's not a head, that's a container for a head. All right, all that laughter you're hearing, people making fun of me, my own co-host. Hi again, everybody. It's Jungle Jim Jerome coming at you with another episode of Let's Beat Up Jim, okay? It's <laughs> inside curling. It's a big week, of course. The World Curling Championships are on. As always, the guy who scares me the most, Warren Hansen, our World Curling <laughs> Hall of Famer. Kevin Martin, of course, is in Ottawa, another World Curling Hall of Famer. And uh, he's going to bring us a bunch of updates there with what's going on. Uh, you guys are making fun of my shiny head. What about Martin? He has a shiny head. You don't, you don't pick on him. <laughs> Let's recognize all our sponsors. Sports Interaction, who brings you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost is the sponsor of Mailbag. We do it each and every week. We read your emails. Coyote Tractor, the sponsor of Hot Rock Topics. And Goldline, who brings you our guest spot called In the House, and we have one. And to welcome a brand new sponsor. Thank you very much to Hearing Life, who will bring you a new segment that it will be known as What Are You Hearing? Here's what's on the show. Uh, the World Men's Curling Championships in Ottawa. Kevin's going to give us an update there on everything happening. Uh, in the house, we've got uh, Hugh Milligan, who is the vice president of the World Curling Federation. He's a replanted Canadian who lives in Australia. He, of course, is at the world. We've got an email from Anita. What's happening around the curling world? The world's men's. We're going to make our predictions. I don't want to tell you how many of us pick it, but I think I'm in third. And third used to be pretty good, unless there's only three of you making predictions. The Canadian Junior U21 Championship concluded this weekend in Rouen, Naranda, Quebec. And we're going to have a look at what happened there. Curling Canada announced some new inductees into the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame. Hot Rock Topics on Twitter. Roland Gerritsen, Vanderhoop, suggested that someone needs to tell Canadian fans it is not in the spirit of curling to applaud or cheer for a bad shot. And Brent Lang responds, What are you hearing? Our new segment. This is the first time for this segment, brought to you by our new sponsor, Hearing Life. The Russ Howard team from 1993. That's how old you're all getting, <laughs> if you remember Russ. They threw the opening stone for the men's world, and, and they were wearing their jackets from that year in 1993. On Twitter, some people thought they would make a great retro Every other sports team is doing the retro. Why not curling? Warren's going to give us a little history of the Canadian uniform. And Kevin, you, uh, you may not know this, but you might have been the first guy to break the mold on these sweaters. The World Men's is about uh, halfway through with the round robin. Uh, I was hoping Canada would do better. As I looked this morning, uh, I think they're on, on the cusp of either just making it or just not making it. Uh, Kev, what's, what's happening? The event's going off pretty well. I think the crowds have been really quite good. The patch type of a party area is uh, is in a, a really old building, and, and Warren gave me a bit of history of that. Nearby, it holds about 2,000. There was a, like, had to have been a couple thousand people in there the other night, and you'd remember that, Jimmy. You were always the host of the, of the Briar Patch back in the day. So uh, Ottawa, the ice is fantastic, anywhere from 15, 15 and a half even, even. It seems like it's sort of settling out to seven teams that are doing fairly well. You got Sweden, terrific, undefeated. Norway doing very well at four and one, but are up a bunch right now on Italy as we speak. So likely going to five and one. Swiss are at five and one. Scotland, four and one after that close one today. Japan's at four and one. Canada at three and two, but they're winning right now over the Czech Republic. Probably going to go to four and two. Italy at three and two are down six to two to Norway right now. 
So they might get to their third loss. And Czech Republic, uh, they're having a tough game right now against Canada. So they'll be at four losses. So it's kind of falling into seven potential teams. Sweden, Norway, Swiss, Scotland, Japan, Canada, and Italy. Seven teams. There are six teams that make the playoffs. So that's kind of where it sits right now. Japan has not played the heart of the field. I'm kind of thinking that you replace Japan, bring Italy up, and that's your final six. What do you think of Canada, Kev? Who are they facing down the road here? Are they okay or what? Yeah, they're doing pretty good. They're they're playing well. Uh, Brad Gushu kind of maybe was struggling a touch at the start when uh, Canada was playing Norway and had an intern draw. Something kind of unusual that we've seen it in this particular building. And that's teams thinking they can actually, with the big strong sweepers like EJ Harnden or, of course, the towers in, in Italy and so on, can actually sweep hard enough to take the pebble off the ice and therefore slowing the stone down. It's incredible. So I asked Karik about it. His World Curling Federation's a, you know, a little worried about it and stuff. And uh, Karik said at the Briar this year, the, the surface was really, really crisp and hard and they couldn't do it there. It wasn't possible. But with this surface, just different surface, it's a great ice surface, 50 and a half seconds, four and a half feet of curl. So it's, it's wonderful ice. But because of the surface being a little different, you can actually do that. It's not the fabric. Some people are saying it's a fabric. That's not the case. It's, it's just the power of the sweepers being able to really push down on that pebble and able to almost flatten it to actually slow the stone down a little bit, which is something brand new to our sport. We haven't seen... The sweepers be able to do that before, and, and they're just getting so strong. So there's a lot of talk about that. What is exactly the cause? And it's it's really interesting discussion that we've been having. I was sitting at a table, we actually put Karik on uh, speakerphone with the WCF last night to talk about it in depth because it's it's important. We, you know, it's more research with uh, our athletes getting bigger and stronger and faster, and, and we just want to make sure we keep control of it. But anyway, kind of an interesting thing going on here in Ottawa with being able to I guess, manipulate the ice surface even more. But once you get rid of the pebble completely, then there's no pebble. So then it can kind of affect things uh, going forward. So very interesting situation here in Ottawa with, uh, with that. Uh, what's happening around the curling world brought to you by Sports Interaction. You want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction. Get in on the action and make a play at Sports Interaction. You've got to be 19 years or older and Ontario only. And please play responsibly. Okay, Warren. How is the playoffs going to work here at the Worlds in Ottawa? Explain that to us. Go easy on us now, okay? Just to provide a refresher, it'll be exactly the same system that was used at the Women's Worlds in Sweden. So after the end of the round robin, six teams will advance to the playoffs. Teams one and two will directly move to the final four. Team one in position one, team two in position four. The other four teams, team number three will play team number six, and in the semifinal game, that winner will play team number one, and team number four will play team number five, and in the semifinal, they'll go against team two, and from that point on, it's sudden death. Winners go into the finals, losers go to the bronze medal game. So fairly straightforward, nothing too complicated. The only thing, again, is, as we talked about at that event, is there can be a huge discrepancy between that first-place team and the sixth-place team. And, uh, of course, that was the situation in Sweden. And eventual winner, Switzerland, ended up playing uh, in the first game of playoff. Uh, I think Sweden had five losses. Anyway, so that's the that's the one thing about it I don't like, but uh, that's what's happening. Kev, should it only be four teams that make the playoffs? I would say, I'm not sure exactly how the players would feel about that, if they like the six or not. I do like the idea of a page 
final four because the person who wins the round robin, you get a second try. You know, if you happen to falter once, you know, go undefeated and you have one bad game and you're gone. And somebody else that's lost five is still in there. So that's the only thing that I kind of think, you know, is a little bit hard to understand. But the only the only other thing that I, I kind of probably like is that when three plays six and four plays five in the quarterfinals, if you want to call it that, if three wins, three should play two. But if six beats three, then six should have to play one. Yes. Number six seed. Because other, because otherwise you're having three play one and five play two. Well, that's not right. The person who won the round robin should play the lowest seed coming into the semis. Right. There was question about that in Sweden, and nobody seemed to know for sure if that was going to happen. And in the end, I believe by my memory, it didn't happen. Uh, and they just went straight across. Anyway, but I, I think that's a good point. Uh, now it's the time we've all been waiting for. We're going to do our picks. Here's how we're going to do it. Six teams. I'm going to pick the top two teams. Warren's going to pick three and four. Kev, you're going to pick five and six. So I will go first, and I am going to pick New Zealand and Turkey. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I just saw Kevin look up, go, Racy, what? <laughs> I'm glad we're doing it this way because I'm still getting drilled for leaving Gushu out in the briar. So I'll go with the Sweden and Scotland are going to finish one and two. Right out there, eh, Jim? Right on the limb. Yeah, way out there, yeah. All right, I'll make it easy. Switzerland, Canada. For three and four, okay. Kev, you got to pick five and six. All right. Norway and Italy. I agree. So there you have it. Here's our picks from one through six. Sweden first, Scotland second, Switzerland third, Canada fourth, Norway fifth, and Italy sixth. Go, Jim, go. Uh, <laughs> our anchor man, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Canadian Junior U21 Championship ended couple days ago in Rouen, Naranda, Quebec, Warren, what happened there? Well, I think this was pretty exciting, particularly for Alberta, because they won both the men's and the women's. But let's take a look at the women's side first. Uh, Myla Plett made history. And at the event that they won the gold medal, 10-4, to 4, over Newfoundland in Labrador, Mackenzie Mitchell. But history was made because they are also the Canadian Junior Women's U18 champions for this year, which they won back in February. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the history being the first time a team has won U18 and U21. And boy, what a future that team's going to have in front of them, being that good at that age. You may remember the third in that team has the last name of Nedowin, and that's the daughter of Dave and Heather, if you may recall. Uh-oh. So Skip Plitt. Of course, this is joined by Alyssa Nedowin, second Chloe Federuk, and lead Ali Iskew and coach Blair Lenton. So congratulations to them. Fabulous win. On the men's side, also Alberta, and interesting, John Soteo and his team of third, Jordan Newitt, second Ben Morin, and lead Adam Nargler, along with coach Skip Wilson, defeated Northern Ontario's Dallas Burgess of Thunder Bay by a score of 75 in the final. Teo actually lost the final a year earlier to Ontario's Landon Rooney, so a bit of redemption for him. But again, two years in a row, he's right there, and they win. So two great young teams from Alberta. Both those teams have to play at the World Junior B in Finland in December to hopefully qualify for the World Junior, which is also going to be held in Finland in January or pardon, mm -hmm. February 17th to 24. They have to get a podium finish at that qualifying event in December to advance to the Junior A Championship. But I got a feeling these two teams are going to do 
very well just by their history. Kevin, you obviously must know them. Yeah, they're they're going to do well. Both teams are really strong. Skip Wilson, you know, they come out of the Savile Sports Center, and then the ladies' team are just special. They are special. They're going to win a lot over the next you know twenty years. But but might as well get used to uh, hearing their names because uh, to win both the U eighteen and to win the U twenty one, yeah, that is that is something that well it's never happened before. And so good for them. Congratulations. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. Does Dave Nedowin still kick around Edmonton, Kev? I haven't heard his name in a long time. Yeah, yeah, I saw him not too long ago at the Savills, uh, watching the kids doing their thing. So, yeah, yeah, I see Dave. And then Heather, of course, runs the uh, Sherwood Park Curling Club. Yeah, and that's a very successful club. So, all good on the on the Nedowin front. Yeah, good to hear. Curling Canada announced some new inductees weren't into the Canadian Hall of Fame, along with some other award winners. Give us the details. Well, let's talk about the Hall of Fame ones to start with. I, I think the three people are significant without question. John Shea, who has been on the show with us before, is put into the executive honor role as a past chair. Jack Lynch from Quebec is named as a builder, along with Jerry Peckham, who is the retiring high-performance director of Curling Canada. So let's start with Jerry, a lifelong friend of mine, uh, going back to the 70s. And I- interesting how Jerry and I met. Uh, the Briar was in Edmonton in 1973, and in those days, if you lost a player, you couldn't have a substitute. And in the, I think, second draw, their second, Jim Armstrong, broke his wrist sweeping, <laughs> if you can imagine. And so they had to play the balance of the Briar with three players, but they could bring in a sweeper. And uh, I ended up being the sweeper, I think, for eight or nine games for BC in the 1973 Briar, which Jerry was the lead in that team, and uh, that's how we really kind of got to know each other. Jerry's history goes back a long time. At that point, I was operating the Silver Boom Curling School, and we were developing the Curl Canada program for teaching. And uh, he became very involved in in those aspects and uh, was very involved in the development of the teaching standard of those days, the Curl Canada program, along with Gary DeBlon and myself. So he, he goes back farther than his employment with Curling Canada, which started in 1990. So a great history with the sport, a great teacher. I taught athletic skills most of my life. I found Jerry to be one of the best athletic skill teachers I'd ever dealt with. He's also a tennis pro. So uh, well-deserved recognition for Jerry. He served as a high-performance director from 1990 until just right now with David Murdoch taking over. So uh, great recognition for him. John Shea, we've we've all known John. Um, very active in the development end of the sport. Uh, former chair of the Ontario Curling Association, former chair of Curling Canada, advocate for... The sport looks forward, doesn't look backward. So again, a very well-deserved appointment. The third person, Jack Lynch, will be a name no one recognizes, but a gentleman I know or knew very well because Jack, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But he was instrumental in getting the additional eight countries into the World Federation to officially qualify curling as an Olympic sport. Jack was a former employee of the Kenyan Olympic Committee and as a result had contacts all over the world with Olympic committees. And uh, he was the driving force behind getting those eight additional countries into curling and as being recognized by Curling Canada and the World Federation is also inducting him into their call of fame. So congratulations to all of them. I'd also like to acknowledge a couple of other awards they give out. The Awards of Achievement. Jennifer Snell and Christy Pestersack work for Sportsnet and are the organizers behind the Grand Slams. They are the key drivers behind making all those events happen, and Curling Canada has given them the Award of Achievement. So congratulations so well to to Jen and Christy. And Elaine Brennick of who is part of the... Uh, 
The organizing committee at the World's Happening Right Now was given uh, the Ray Kingsmith Award as a volunteer sort of of the year. Yeah, actually, Jerry was with us at a lot of our world championships and Olympics for all the years. So yeah, Jerry's a great friend and has been for, geez, when do we start? I think he came with us, Warren, in 1992 to the Alberville Olympics. And we got to know each other really well then and, of course, friends till today so fantastic and jen and christy of course with the slams they just do so much work so uh, you know we've uh, we've all reached out to them to congratulate jen and christy but they do a heck of a job too so i never met mr lynch uh but uh mr shea we certainly know as well from uh, different meetings over the years and then he was on our show not long ago actually so yeah good good on them yeah congratulations I know Johnny, he's a great, and he's a wonderful guy and very passionate about curling, but a terrible golfer. Uh, I kid you, Johnny, I kid <laughs> I've played a bunch of golf with Johnny over the years. Uh, when did you guys get inducted to the Canadian Hall of Fame? I think, Kevin, you were at 2014. It was, it was really quite funny. I got, uh, I retired. My last event was the Players' Championship at the end of April in 2014. Mm-hmm. And Sean and I were driving someplace. I don't remember exactly where. My phone rang within seven days of retiring. And right. uh, it was a call saying, you're in the Hall of Fame. And I started laughing. I said, well, you guys sure want to make sure I don't come back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get rid of that Martin guy out of this thing. Yeah, <laughs> That was funny. Yeah, so Kevin was 2014. I was 2015. Congratulations to all our inductees and uh, to you guys too. And as... Uh, mentioned you guys are also in the world curling hall of fame was that, I, i'm assuming that was later kevin you were inducted in uh vegas weren't you in 2018 yep the men's worlds that was awesome oh jimmy quick story about that sure so, um men's worlds is in vegas and i was calling the worlds for nbc right but we weren't calling the worlds on site we were actually calling the worlds out of denver colorado off video and we're working with the with Jason Knapp, we do a lot of work together in the States. And so we're calling games, get off the air for a game, straight to the airport, straight to Vegas, and then get together with the WCF group and have a wonderful time. Of course, Kate Gatness and everybody, and then walk out on the ice and everybody's going, well, yeah, it's, where have you been? Like, we've been watching all the games. You're, you're calling all the games. And I go, ah, did the, it's great to see you. Great to see you. As yeah, soon yeah. as you get off the ice to the air back to denver and, then, oh, that's and funny. then catch the next game oh it was so funny it was so good nobody realizing that we weren't in the building to call the games we were in denver uh how about you warren when did you get inducted into the world in 2016 in basel switzerland at the men's worlds there you go what a show right two world curling hall of famers and me <laughs> Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In the House is brought to you by Goldline. Goldline Curling's Momentum Rush shoes are the fastest, most stable, and most comfortable shoes Goldline has ever made. Learn more at goldlinecurling.com. Well, it's time for one of our favorites. My favorite, anyway, because then I don't have to talk to Warren right away. <laughs> See, there-, <laughs> there it is. Someone's at the door. Come on in, Hugh Milligan. Thank you very, thank you very much, Hugh, for 
joining the show. You are you are the vice president of the World Curling Federation. You must have a reputation, uh, Hugh, because I've I've heard about you. Okay, I've heard about you, but no one ever finishes. They go, oh man, Hugh Milligan. I go, what what does that mean? (laughs) You are a replanted Canadian in Australia and now working for the uh, WCFs. Uh, Congratulations as being the vice president. Uh, Thanks a lot for joining us, Hugh. I'm assuming you're in Ottawa right now. I am. I'm here at, uh, at in Ottawa at uh, at what I think is probably one of our best venues for hosting a world championship. The last time I was here at the Briar, it was amazing, and and it's amazing again for the world championship. So it's great to be here in Ottawa. When did you get on the uh, WCF? I joined the board in 2014, so it's been uh, about nine years or so. The other curiosity I have is how do, how did you end up in Australia? Well, it, it's a bit of a funny story. I'll give you the short Coles note version. I, I uh, decided when I was pretty young that I wanted to do something different when I was 20 and something different when I was 30. 20, I went from a car mechanic to a computer programmer. And at 30, I just quit my job and bought a ticket around the world and left. I didn't have an, any plans on staying in Australia, but I just happened to run out of money down there. So uh, I couldn't afford to leave, which was probably not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we talk about the WCF all the time and what their role is. Give us an idea on on what's going on these days. You know, we've had a uh, fairly consistent board and leader with uh, with Kate over a long period of time, and she was amazing. And we now have a new board, new president, and a new vision as to where we want to go. We recently had a meeting to say, you know, what do we need to do? Where the, What are the challenges going forward? And so we came up with uh, a number of those initiatives. So you're going to see a lot of changes within the WCF over the next couple of years as the sport has been changing and the challenges and the headwinds, I guess, that we see in the sport. And we have to try and fix some of that stuff to make it more interesting for fans and things. So uh, all of those plans are going to be unfolded in the next couple of years. So it should be quite exciting time. Can you give us an idea of what those are? Yeah, well, so, it, you know, one of the things I guess I've been uh, beating the uh, the drum on for the WCF was that we needed to diversify our revenue. You know, when we went from a bottom-up funded sport before the Olympics, they, we then became a top-down funded sport. So the IOC would give us money every four years, and that would that would fund the federation for the quad. And then we would just simply go and spend it. Well, that makes up a, a huge proportion of our of our revenue, and we need to diversify that. That means we have to change the financial model that we work work under. We need to think more commercially going forward, and really just try and do more things and be less reliant on the IOC funding. That doesn't mean I want the IOC funding to have, but if we want it to stay the same or go higher, we just need to find other ways of revenue. Before we bring Kevin in, uh, give us an idea on the growth of curling. Is it flat? Is it declining? Is it growing? We've gone from 30 some odd members uh, 10 years ago to now having 70 members. So certainly that side of it is is incredible. And we're seeing uh, lots of growth potential in the subcontinent in particular. Uh, Asia is, is flying along. Certainly, you know, the success of the of the women's teams from Korea and Japan has really driven a lot of that growth. Then there's the other side of the coin where some of our existing members have either had flat growth or even negative growth. And so we're worried about, you know, the cost of uh, energy and things. So the facilities and how we how we make sure that they're sustainable. So that's that's also our concern. So on one side, there's I think the curling is, is growing at a huge rate. You know, on the other side, we have to ensure that we don't leave people behind. And and I guess that's uh, that's one of the other initiatives that we're looking at is how do we ensure that we either build facilities that are more sustainable or turn our facilities into into better run businesses so that they're all successful financially and and more sustainable. 
Somebody I talk to all the time is Rona Howie. And I guess one, one thing I'd like to talk to you about is the hosting sites. Um, because you guys do so many events on the men's worlds, women's worlds, mixed doubles worlds, but then you also do senior worlds and, 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 and B events because you've got 70 nations now or more than that, like a, a great amount of nations worldwide uh, involved. So it's, it's not all about A level or elite level curling. It's also growing. So when it comes to uh, facilities to play these events in, I guess it concerns me, where are you going to play them? Like what's, what's the plan as to where you're going to play all these B level and development events so that we can get more and more countries interested in competing? Well, Jim, you know, was talking about uh, the first question about big ideas and what we did with this ideation. And one of the things coming out of that was addressing exactly what you're talking about. We struggle to find hosts and we need to really look at hosts in a holistic view, but certainly those participation or B-level uh, entry, C-level events, we've really struggled to get facilities. And so one of the things that's on our plate is to look at at having WCF either owned or operated or licensed facilities that are centers of excellence and training centers that we can use to host these events. For us to go into a curling club and, and take the ice away from the members, you know, sometimes just not practical. You know, this whole development of the game we need to look at it and say, well, how do we educate our, our new players? How do we have these centers of excellence bring up the bar of the quality of the players at the same time use that facilities for these events that aren't economical to host? So then you could actually use these buildings that you're talking about to host these events, but they're kind of either owned or operated in some partnership. When you're doing all these events, you're shipping everything it takes to have an event. Uh, scraping machines, curling stones, scoreboards, uh, measuring sticks. So you, you got to have barges going all over the, <laughs> all the different continents. Am I, or am I all messed up with that? No, no, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and, you know, I, I suppose, you know, when I lived in Canada, I, I thought that 110 volts was the only thing that anybody ever used. But the reality is, of course, you go to Europe and it's 240 volts and Australia has a different plug. And and so you're absolutely right. The logistics side of trying to do this on a global basis is, uh, uh, and I'm sure that Rona, since she does a lot of the logistics, she'd be, she'd be uh, more versed on it than I am. But you're absolutely right. Uh, when you think about centers of excellence um, and these training centers, whether we own them, whether we license them, whether we we go joint venture to create them, part of that whole thing is to then reduce our costs in hosting events and and doing things around the world because it is a very expensive thing to be shipping stones and scrapers and scoreboards. And as we involve more technology, you know, especially if you look at here, the success of the electronic scoreboards and the electronic advertising, if I take those boards, I can't use those boards in Europe because they have a different voltage. So those things need to be done on a global basis and regionally. Get a chance to talk to somebody like Hugh. I've got a million questions, but one thing that worries me is you've got 70 nations now involved in curling. I guess, how do you get enough facilities in each nation so that the teams can improve? Because we see some in nations like Italy that are getting so good. Turkey, they're really improving and so on. But I guess when it comes to new nations coming in like India, Nigeria, how do you get enough facilities so that we can get enough curlers so that they can grow and get into the uh, A level? We will be partnering. We'll be looking for joint venture partners. We'll be trying to build facilities that are potentially multi-sport. We're fortunate enough in Australia, we've, up until this point, we haven't had any dedicated facility, 
but uh, through the combination of, of a joint venture partner with the government, the Australian Institute of Sport, they've created a, an ice sports uh, center of excellence in Canberra. And so we're cracking the uh, dirt on that in early next year, and we'll have it built in 2025. And that will provide not only a center of excellence, but it'll enable us to to do an awful lot more and potentially regionally. Right now, we rely on our friends across the pond in New Zealand, where uh, we use their facilities on a regional basis. You know, sometimes I, I think if you uh, think about Europe, there's an awful lot of countries in a very small place versus Australia and Canada and the US, where it's a very for large country. Uh, and so it's all about partnering and figuring out the best way to do this, because it's it's not an expensive thing to build a facility. And so you know, that's the one thing. And then, of course, the running costs and making them sustainable from a financial perspective means that we need to have a good financial model in doing this. And I think that's one of the other challenges that you have, you know, the Canadian uh, centric way mostly is a membership model where you pay a membership for an entire year. Uh, the European model is more I pay for each game. A lot of the stuff that has gone on particularly actually in a place like uh, New Zealand, they've discovered that corporate events and and off the street corporate tourism is paying the bills. So there's all kinds of different models to do this, but you know, one part is getting the facility built. The second one is how do you keep it running and make it sustainable? So that's one of our initiatives we're looking at. All right. Well, thanks, Hugh, for joining us. I first want to mention that everyone should know Hugh is a accomplished player. How many times did you represent Australia at the Worlds? I think I've had played 400 and 40 games for Australia. <laughs> Hugh was a curler of note before he left Canada. He was a member of the 1986 Canadian Mixed Championship team from Ottawa. So he was a curler of note in Canada before he left. Thank you. Let's go in a different direction, and because I think this is another issue that's going to be a challenge going forward. There's 70 nations, as you suggest. The premium events, men's and women's worlds, we have 13 countries participating in those two events. We really don't have a B or C system at the men's and women's level. The 13-team event, uh, I understand the politics that are associated with it at the moment, but it makes for a very long event. And I think also when you play a 12-team round robin, that those 12 wins probably don't have the significance that they should in the final playoff. So I guess, how are you looking at this going forward? I mean, my opinion, the ideal situation is if you're going to have the round robin playoff, Division should be probably 10 teams and A, B, and C, and teams go up and teams go down like they do in the Europeans and with the juniors. But there are some politics associated with that. The other solution I see is even increasing the number and going to a more quicker type of playoff rather than the round robin. So let's say you go to 16 and go into two pools and a quicker playoff that could probably be done in, in maybe five, six days. Is, is this being discussed, or how do you look at this going forward to make all this work when you do have 70 nations that are members? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very good question. And and uh, I guess the other role I have on the board uh, is I'm chair of competitions and rules. And so we listen to uh, your podcast, actually. So uh, so thank you for all the input that you guys give us <laughs> give us over the years. And so we're very much aware of of the, the pulse, I guess, of, of the curling community. Uh, the members have absolutely been uh, knocking on the door to say we need to have more teams at the world championship if you go back in time when we had 10 men and 10 women uh, we ran them together and that was that was quite a spectacular event i thought and then as we moved to splitting them to then 12 teams 
then to 13 teams. That was more of an economic thing to try and balance the strengths of, of Europe and, and Asia. Because when we had 10 teams, Asia Pacific had one berth. And then as you saw that, you know, Japan and Korea and China get stronger, it would eliminate an awful lot of players. So there's lots of pressure on when you get to 70 members to say how can we increase the number of teams at the world championship? So like I said, so we started off with 10 teams, then we went to 12, then we went to 13. We looked at 14 with seven pools. We looked at 16 with two pools of eight teams. We've looked at another system, which is uh, 10 plus 10. The juniors uh, was one of those ones where we then went to a straight ladder system of an AB. And in fact, actually, we do have ABC ladder in Europe. And the recent uh, creation of the pan-continental system was to try and emulate that success of, of a ladder system they run in Europe as the feeders into the world championships to give us a, a growth and a consistent way of saying, if I play in Pacific Asia or, or the America zone, or I play in Europe, I have a similar path to get to the world championships. We look at everything and we are ongoing looking at everything. But nowadays, you have to look at things more on a quad basis. Our plan is to continue with this format through to the end of this quad, but make a decision and change the format, which we think will be more reflective of, of the size of our membership, and then roll that into place in the next quad. So all of these things come into play. And when we analyze them, we have a set of principles we judge to see whether or not it actually is the thing we should do. You know, right now we have a number of existing contracts with Curling Canada and other hosts that, you know, we can't make a change in the short term. But also, we also have an economic model and the broadcast way that we do things today, uh, which, is, as all of you know, is is changing very quickly. And that changes the economics of running these things as well. So all these things are taken into account, and we will be most likely looking at a different kind of format uh, with the next quad coming up. Let's talk about uh, mixed doubles, because that's been sort of your thing with the WCF. And I want to talk about it from a couple of angles. It's an Olympic medal sport. To some degree, I thought the profile, particularly in Canada, would have gone far quicker than it has. And for some reason, it's stalled in Canada. At the world level, it's got a, a pretty good presence, but it's still being stuck in there with the world seniors. It's kind of two events being done in one, which I'm kind of of the opinion it should have its own two legs to stand on. So I guess a couple of questions. Have you got any plans to try and make this more of a standalone event going forward? And how do you see mixed doubles mixing into the whole development of curling around the world? Do you think it's an important element? Do you think it's really going to be a thing of the future? What are your thoughts about it? Well, I always get in trouble about this one, uh, so so I'll try try not to get myself in too much trouble here. <laughs> you know, and thank you for your involvement in getting it going. And and when I looked at it when I first came on the board in 2014, my feeling was that here is an opportunity to make mixed doubles. You know, a very special event. It is uh, something that is a lower point of entry for most of our new MAs. It was uh, something that we could differentiate and get a different audience. The idea was to make it faster and more entertaining. We could introduce sports presentation, and we could make this this event something really, really special. And I guess the uh, the first couple of changes that we put in place. Uh, before the 2016 Olympics were moving the stone back, doing the power play and changing the sweeping rule that uh, that was supposed to be phase one. Phase two is to try and make it more of a 
an event that engages with the fans in a little better way. But in particular, in mixed doubles, we need to really make mixed doubles closer to uh, rugby sevens and beach volleyball, where as a discipline, it is an entertainment property on its own. That's part of what we want to do. And of course, that requires rule changes and some format things that we need to do. But I think that goal of trying to get more people in the venue is absolutely critical. And, and I think if you attend Korea, which with Kevin, I, I gather you're coming along, which would be great, that you'll see probably more people in the seniors venue than you'll see in the mixed doubles venue. And that's really disappointing. And so I agree with you. I've not been, uh, I guess, as happy with the uptake of the sport in Canada and uh, you know, as as well as the rest of the world. We, until we fix that problem, the going back to the hosting issue is that right now, if I go look for a host for an event, um, I am much more success getting a host if I say you're going to take mixed doubles and seniors because the seniors generate a lot of positive cash flow and the, the mixed doubles right now is costing money. So I put the two of them together and I can find a host and it makes sense because they're profitable. If I split the mixed doubles out, we know it's going to be a net negative on the hosting experience because we haven't managed to get that interest and get the people in the venue. Certainly for the next little while, I still see them together. We want to get to the point where it's a standalone Olympic sport and we get people and it gets exciting and it's the all the things that it can be. Uh, Hugh, I got a couple questions for you. Um, I'm sure the WCF, you know, looks to Canada to see what's going on with curling and 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 the growth of the sport and all that. You know, the Briars and the Scotties were getting, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand people uh, in the arena uh, during the Briar, for example. And now those host cities are have arenas that are only five or six thousand. Warren and Kevin have both been very vocal about: Are we stuck in this demographic? that curling is still this plus 50 deal. And uh, they have both said, if you don't get the youth involved, that's probably an indication of where curling will be in trouble. I don't want to speak for the WCF, but I'm guessing they probably agree with that. Is it something that the WCF looks at that we've got to change the way we're trying to get people attracted to curling? I 100% agree. I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy that spent his life in technology and, and innovation and entrepreneurial and so I very much think that we need to use more innovation, need to use technology and need to engage more with the fans and have the fans engage with the sport. You know, sitting there for three hours um, and, and watching a game when you love the game is not a problem at all. And, and the crowds that are, that are here in Ottawa, they're spectacular. They're, they are engaged, but it is an older demographic. Mm-hmm. We need to make the fan more engaging with the players and with the venue and with the and with the activity and you know i've thrown out a a lot of different eyes ideas about how we can do this and and you know a simple one of those things is when we end up in a situation where the the uh, there's a timeout and they're trying to determine whether they're going to play a draw or a hit or a raise or whatever why aren't we asking them to vote on what uh, what Kevin Martin should decide uh, on the shot? And then if he decides to throw the rock away, sorry, Kevin, you know, then... <laughs> yeah, good idea. And then, uh, you know, the fans can then go back and you can say, well, you know, 90% of the people said, Kevin, you shouldn't have thrown that rock away. Uh, so that then engages the fans with the event and it needs to be a little more proactive. And so, so that's certainly one of the things that I'm looking at with an innovation group within the WCF to say, how do we do that? You know, how do we make sure that when the person walks in the venue that they're excited and how do we keep their attention? And 
and all those things. So I absolutely agree with the three of you that uh, that this is a problem that is serious issue for our sport. You know, we have to fix that experience in the venue, which then translates into the broadcast property, makes it more entertaining, gets our sponsorships more active, and then ultimately it generates revenue for everybody. And that's really what the success will be. Uh, my other question is, you know, the the two major sports networks in Canada, uh, Sportsnet and, and TSN, as you had mentioned, these must be nightmarish days for these uh, big broadcast companies. My kids walk in my house and go, you you still have cable, Dad? You know, streaming is is coming on. It's been around for a while. Tell us where you see it going in the broadcast world. You've got to look to the future. And, and so much of that is changing and hard to keep a handle on it. What's going to happen, uh, Hugh, with that? Yeah, it's 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 a really tough question to to answer. And you know, like I said earlier, that you know, we all sort of could see it coming, could see streaming coming, but it's happening a lot faster than we anticipated. I think at the micro level, uh, one of the things that you're you'll you'll see from the WCF is now due to cost, uh, you know, coming down dramatically in technology, we're going to stream and live stream just about every sheet and every game and every event, and um, and that's really part of the the growth of the sport is that i know if if uh, india is playing in the b division at the pan continental and i can live stream their games that somebody back in india can watch that and get excited about it and then that'll start to develop the game the next level up when it comes to uh you know more in-depth commentating and full production type streaming we've gone down the road of canning that and putting it into a recast type environment i don't think that's the end answer you know we need to figure out that and create more of a value to that uh, issue because unless we are expanding the audience then we need to figure out another way and then certainly the the broadcasters are are also dealing with that same issue of saying do we record this is it have any value in the replay or is it always always live i think if i take my rugby experience and you look at the rugby games they're now the replays of the rugby games are just as valuable as the live ones and so keeping things in this the ott stuff uh behind a specific pay firewall is really where it's all going to end up it's just who's firewall and who's paying and making sure you don't restrict your audience hugh milligan has uh, been our guest the uh, vice president since 2014 with the world curling federation uh hugh you sound like a guy hugh that i'd like to hang out with oh thanks (laughs) maybe let's go you know for a couple of beers or something and uh you can tell me what you really think of Warren. No, I don't. <laughs> I kid. Hugh, uh, great answers. Uh, we really appreciate you handling the tough questions and uh, and everything you're doing for curling. Uh, you enjoy the rest of the week in Ottawa, and uh, congratulations again, and uh, thanks for coming on. We'll see you later, Hugh. Thank you, and thanks, Warren and Kevin. Uh, you guys are fantastic, so uh, keep up all the good work, and anything you want me to fix, uh, you can tell me. I might not do it, but, uh, but you can tell me anyway. <laughs> See you later, Hugh. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Hugh. Cheers, boys. Uh, There he goes, folks. Uh, Hugh Milligan. Uh, Could we have him on for eight or nine hours? Uh, Boy, oh boy. What a great addition to the World Curling Federation, Kevin. This guy. Love him. Love him. Yeah, well, Hugh, he's is a sharp guy. Um, we've got a really good board now. Bull Welling, the president, is really good too. And I just think they're in a really good direction. It was great that he would come on and chat with us. 
We, we have an incredible sport that is growing like crazy, but with that growth, there's a lot of things that need to be worried about. And uh, so it was, it was good to hear from them, and, and they're thinking of all these things. And you can tell there's a lot of discussions going on, but it, it's a really tough thing to trap quickly. It's going to take some time to get uh, all this, like an octopus. There's a million different directions being pulled, and, and it's going to take some time to get it on the track. It must have been music to your ears, Warren, when he said, when there's timeouts, let's do something with the crowd. You know, let's get let's get them involved. You must have loved to hear that. Well, I think yes. I mean, there's a whole pile of things I think it can happen with crowds and things that can be done. And I think the number one is probably an app that is operational within the building. That through that app, there's all kinds of things going on continually. Even games can be played. Things can be won. The type of things that we know are attractive to Gen Zs. And uh, right now, we aren't offering much inside these buildings that's attractive to a, to a Gen Z. So I'm glad to hear that they're talking about it. And I hope that that's going to be broadened considerably because we have a challenge. Hey, Jimmy, can you imagine if you get on the app on your phone and there's a there's a timeout, uh, Guju's playing against um, Mowat. And all of a sudden, there's a raise back, a freeze, or you can come in off the double. And up on the screen, up on the, because of your, you're putting in your choice, A, B, or C, on your phone, and the curlers can look up into the jumbotron and see the the percentages changing from 42, 46, 48 right. percent of the people <laughs> right. think that you should play the run back, 61 percent, 64, boom, 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 it just keeps changing, and pretty soon the the curlers going to say. Are you serious to run back? That's a bad call, you guys. But 66% of the people in the building, right? you guys don't right. know anything. Like, it would be You're, so funny. It would be, it would be tremendous. Uh, good stuff. Uh, uh, Hugh was terrific, and uh, we're going to get him on again a lot more, I'm sure. So, Mailbags brought to you by Nestle Boost. Complete nutrition to fuel your day. Thanks a lot to Nestle Boost. Uh, here's an email from Anita. Hello, Inside Curling. Kevin Warren and Jim. As I enjoy watching the men's worlds, I decided to send you an email about a couple of things that I, as a recreational curler, have questions about. Number one, curling percentages. Who determines the percentages and how are they calculated? Where do these individuals sit in the venue during a game? The percentages are constantly changing based on each shot and constantly communicated to broadcasters, coaches, and other officials. Is that the case? Timeouts. When a timeout is called by Team A, is Team B allowed to speak to their own coach? have noticed in a few events this year that Team B will be speaking to their coach at the end of the sheet while Team A is having their official timeout. I always thought that this was not allowed. Thank you for the terrific job you do on the podcast. It's always informative, educational, and entertaining. Keep it up. That's Anita Hayes from Ennismore, Ontario, just north of Peterborough, she says. So, Warren, you know what Kevin and I like, breaking down stats. We don't like it. So you're going to be the one to explain how the percentages work. Good questions, Anita. So let's talk about the curling percentages and how that's all done. So whether it's a Canadian event or a world event, it's slightly different, but let's talk about the world one because that's what's happening in Ottawa right now. The World Federation has a contract with a Swiss company called Curlit, and they're the ones who do all the percentages uh, for all the World Curling Federation events. And if you want to go to curlit.com, you can pull up all these numbers that, as they're happening anytime you wish and, you, and along with other things that you may find of interest. Uh, Curlit will come into Ottawa and uh, they will train a number of local people who are usually competitive curlers to be scorers. 
They sit at the end of the arena in the media bench area, usually behind the sheets of ice. They're on computer and they are inserting the score that they see in each shot as it happens on each sheet of ice. So it's constantly changing and constantly being updated. Broadcasters, coaches, and anyone who wishes can access this information almost immediately. In Canada, Curling Canada does all this themselves, and it's a similar system. They have a number of head statisticians across the country that they assign to various events. They train all the local statisticians, and they are involved in compiling the whole results system and everything. So it's it's fairly complicated, but it is there for the uh, fan to access, if you wish. And again, it's a world event right now, so if you want to access any of this stuff, just go to curlit.com. The timeout question um, this is a very timely one as well because of what's going on. So in Canada, the coaches and alternate players sit at the coaches bench directly behind the sheet of ice. And when a timeout is called by one team, that coach can go it onto the ice. The other team can't, but their team can consult with them. That is quite allowed. Now at the world level, and it's different here this week, uh, if you looked at an event last uh, week in Sundevin, Sweden, Coaches were not at lice level, and uh, they couldn't access their team except if an actual timeout was called. And that's been a position kind of taken by the WCF over time. They don't want the coaches at a level, ice level. I'm not sure why. But this week in Ottawa, and I'm sure from my knowledge and experience with that building, it's because of the building they're in that the coaches are sitting down behind the bench. Because otherwise, you would have had to kill probably a couple of thousand seats that are very saleable and very expensive to put in that bench to be able to do this. And as a result, I, it probably doesn't exist. Kevin can maybe elaborate. So you're seeing something a little different in Ottawa this week from what the World Federation has normally done. And that is the coaches are sitting down at ice level. As far as the, the markers, I, the only reason I know them is they're sitting right beside me. We're doing uh, all four sheets of ice with World Curling Television. And the stats people are beside each of us, our booze. So uh, we see them every single game. We're talking to them all the time and they're busy doing their stats. So yeah, they're right there with us. And I think it's a great thing having the coaches right at ice level with the teams. Um, It doesn't take nearly as long to get the coaches to the timeout, to the ice surface. They can get there quick. They can discuss. That's great. Rather than be stuck way up high, it takes a couple of minutes to get there, slowing things down. You know, it's all about getting the game going in sports and having the coaches right there makes makes a lot of sense in, in, in my world. And yeah, I, I know the seats you're talking about, Warren, at the end. Um, those are premium seats for the fans. And if you were to build a, a scaffolding setup to hold the coaches and, and, and everybody up at that end, you're taking away the almost all the good end seats, which is prime for curling. So it makes sense. Keep the coaches on the ice and have more fans in the building. Kev, when you uh, when the slams are on, do they adopt the same rules? Are they are they consistent with what the WCF does? There's not like like I know in international hockey, for example, it's always bugged me. They go, well, they play in a di- different size rink. I'm like, why why do they would they do that when everyone plays on a, on the other size rink? Well, Jim, we play eight ends versus ten. That's one thing, yeah. Uh, no, but the thinking time is has been adopted by the WCF and the no tick zone that came from slams. Um, and that's being trialed here, but it's really well liked. So I imagine it'll become a rule. You have to play six ends minimum in regular round robin play here, uh, and then eight ends in the playoffs. Um, that's a little different than the slams. Slams you have to play five, but it's only an eight end game. And in the slams, the, the coaches are right down on the ice. Hot Rock Topics brought to you by Coyote Tractor. 
If you have work to do, Coyote has the tractors, UTVs, and ZTRs to do it. We dig dirt. Uh, so as mentioned in the intro, there was a complaint made by Canadian fans cheering when the other team misses. Uh, is this against the spirit of curling? Brent Lang responded. My guess was he would say, yes, you shouldn't be doing it. He says, no, have at her, baby. Why is it not in the spirit of curling to cheer when the opposition misses? Uh, Kevin, you've got lots of experience with this, although you didn't miss very often. Uh, I disagree with Brent. I think it's brutal to cheer against a team that makes a mistake. But what do you say, Kevin? Uh, I've got to kind of go with Brent on this one. Um, to me, I, I want to see the buildings full of people having fun. If you don't miss, you won't have anybody cheering when you miss. Um, to me, it's it's fine. I'd, we had lots of that over the years where, you know, you're in, in a certain place and, and you, you, you mess it up and the, because they're hoping for the other team. Like if we're at, in, in somebody else's barn, right. if we're in Switzerland, say, playing, or, or Scotland or in, in a briar if you're down east and not in the west, and, and they're hoping for the other team. That's okay. They don't, it's not that they don't, li- they, they don't like you. They want their team to win. And if you make every shot, uh, well, their team won't be able to win. So you miss a few. I, I just don't, I, I don't see much in it. I want to see the buildings full and people cheering like crazy and having fun. And one thing about curling until you get to the final game, you've always got lots of sheets going too. <laughs> there's lots of activity, right. cheering, and there's lots of yelling going on and so on. So I don't worry much about it. Warren, do you agree or disagree? I think curling has to grow up. If they're used to that happening, they become accustomed to it. They become hardened to it. But if they're not used to it, it's sort of like I can remember some pretty horrendous situations and because we were used to playing in this silence. And all of a sudden, we would be playing in an arena and it was pretty disruptive. And one of the most disruptive things ever dealt with was going into a world championship in Bern, Switzerland the young Attinger team being on the ice, and all of a sudden, Switzerland, that didn't have much of a curling history, thought they could win a world. So when we play them in a round robin, there's 13,000 Swiss in the building who knew zero about curling, and they all had cowbells. So every time we missed, we had a standing cowbell ovation, and I heard cowbells ringing for two years. But if you're facing it every day, it's it's like the NBA and the free throws. They become accustomed to all the distraction and, and they wipe it out. I think curlers have to become used to and deal with it because particular younger generation that we're trying to attract, they want to come in, they want to have fun, they want to cheer for, they want to cheer against, they want to be able to do what they want to do. And I think we have to adapt to that. I think, Kev, if you really want to make it exciting, Warren and Kevin, uh, get the players, the opposition team, to cheer when the guy misses. <laughs> okay, that That'd might, be good, baby. That might okay. be going too far. That might be going that would, too far. That would be awesome. Yeah, if you see the opposition skip, give it the high five with all his buddies because dude flashed a rock or picked or something. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Maybe I'll change my mind. That was Hot Rock Topics. Um, here's our new segment brought to you by Hearing Life. It's called What Are You Hearing? Beautiful. The Russ Howard team threw the opening stone at the World Men's in Ottawa. The team wore the same jackets that was their uniform at the Worlds 30 years ago, uh, which is 1993. It got someone's attention on Twitter who thought the jackets or the windbreakers as the jackets were referred to a great opportunity to develop a retro product. Uh, I'm assuming this would be for for Team Canada. 
Warren, you were part of the old clothing revolution or evolution with curling. Take us back, Warren. Uh, it was always sweaters that everyone made fun of. And uh, when was the day they ended that? Well, there's a, quite a story with this whole thing. And uh, if we can go back into the, the 70s, there wasn't even uh, provincial colors. Every team that went to the Briar kind of wore the color that they wanted. And I mean, Kevin and I are from Alberta. If you went to the Briar out of Northern Alberta, you were wearing a black sweater with uh, three white bands around the arm. And if you went out of Southern Alberta, you were wearing a red sweater. So when I became involved with uh, the Canadian Curling Association back in that era, uh, one of the first things that I waded into was, first of all, having a world uniform, and then secondly, trying to get color to each province that was distinct to them. The provincial one took almost five years uh, and, and was finally sorted out by about 1984. Uh, the world one, for the first time in 1977, the men's team, Jim Ursel representing Canada, and on the junior side, the teams going to the Worlds had a Canadian sweater, which was a white sweater with three red stripes down the left side. 1990 was the last time a team going to the Worlds wore one of those white sweaters with the three red stripes down the side. And an interesting comment, Ed Wernick, who was the Canadian standard bearer of the year in typical wrench fashion, the Europeans by that time were wearing more or less track suits for for curling, and the, the wrench said that playing against those Europeans was they were coming out in their pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> because he, he liked the traditional sweater. Anyway, Kevin, playing in the 1991 Worlds, was the first Canadian team to go to the world level wearing a jacket. That was kind of the evolution of where those windbreakers, as the fan was indicating on Twitter, came from. And, uh, it's, and it's evolved from there considerably. Yeah, not, and not all curlers look like models. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kev, were you the guy who said, okay, I'm not wearing the sweaters anymore. Come up with something different. No, but it was kind of cool when we went to, uh, uh, when you get your, your, all the paraphernalia you get when you go to a world championship, we actually did receive a sweater each and a jacket. So we got the last sweaters. Oh, you got both. Okay. <laughs> we still have them, but then we also had the jackets and that's what we wore in 1991. So, so we ended up getting one of each, which was really kind of cool actually. Um, but those jackets, should we have a retro jacket? I can answer that. And the answer is not the same as what they were. Ray Goodmanson, great friend. He, he, uh, he operated pace setter back in those days. Terrific guy. But these jackets couldn't breathe. They're basically plastic and, if you ever want to lose a bunch of weight, work out in a oh, in, no. in a plastic bag because you, there's no breathing. So these these jackets, when the game was done, would be one just soaked on the inside, like just completely drenched. And you'd have to hang them so that you could yeah, dry right. them for the next game because they were completely 100% just covered in sweat when you're on the inside. <laughs> and uh, so, no, we don't need those retro jackets because uh, you can't breathe in them. They're just basically a plastic uh, there you have it. Uh, another show in the books. Uh, thanks a lot, everyone, for listening. Uh, we love we love it when you do. We love it when you weigh in. Um, thank you to all our sponsors and to Rod Paulson, who handles the Facebook page, which is our biggest go-to. Uh, and Warren participates in all of that. Rod's company is called In-House Strategies. And thank you, Rod, for looking after that. Uh, you want to email us, do it at insidecurling at gmail.com because, as you know now, we do read emails. Uh, also... Big thank you to Sports Interaction, Coyote, Boost, and Goldline, who make all of this possible. And Hearing Life, a little special shout-out to them. 
Boys, take it easy. We've got another show coming up uh, on Friday. Uh, we'll, we'll bring everyone up to speed on what happened in the round robin at the Worlds. And uh, we'll talk to you then. Take it easy, Warren. We'll see you, Kevin. You bet. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy.